right. Nice. Um, Tyler, you have been giving a um, sort of a, uh, a rundown of what you've been doing. And the first thing to say is um, congratulations that you have been able to start to look at the issue of satisfaction and that you mentioned that um that it's like the dissatisfaction is the core unit or that's who you are and the observer is just observing you who is the dissatisfaction yeah is that what you were saying okay well, that fits in exactly with what the Buddha would, would, would say, that it is those feelings of dissatisfaction. That dissatisfaction is actually the dukkha, and that, it, that dukkha is carried by uh, the um, perception or the delusion of the self in the sense that when uh, the mind is clinging to something, we the clinging creates the delusion of a clinger. Mm. Okay, clinging requires a clinger somewhere in there. That's just the way that the mind works. And that the one who is doing the clinging then is the one who does the suffering. Or you could also go so far as to say that in any particular mind moment, when a self is uh, conjured up, invented, produced, born, uh, comes into being, any of those kinds of words. It does so just for the sole purpose of receiving the gift of unsatisfactoriness mm -hmm. or the dukkha. The self and the dukkha are directly and interrelated. The dukkha cannot be experienced unless there is one to experience the dukkha. This is what we would mean by selfishness. In fact, understanding um, the, the, the English language word concept of selfishness is much better understood as than, than the word self, because the word self has a lot of connotations, religious kind of stuff, and that but every little child will understand and call each other selfish when they see it. Okay. So when we use the word selfish, that better helps us to understand what is in that Buddhist concept of anatta. Because you're not always selfish. Sometimes you're completely satisfied. Sometimes you're not trying to get something. In other words, uh, the whole issue of greed, ill will, and delusion as the cause of suffering is that it always also takes that selfishness in the sense of wanting something. When we want something, that means that we want it for the self, or we're selfish. And when uh, uh, we are in an uncomfortable position, we're trying to push that thing that's discomfortable away from the self or another way of being selfish. So go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say, I mean, I that like very much <laughs> resonates with me. And I, and I feel like as I start to investigate that feeling of kind of the tie between the self and, and the suffering, 
like I could see that tie clearly, but then I, when I try to step back from it, I, I feel so much resistance. And it's strange because I could see the tie between the two so clearly, but I, there's like a feeling of kind of like fear when I feel about trying to like step back of like, I, I don't know how to be without that feeling of clinging. Okay. It, um, let us say that we find ourselves in that sort of situation on a regular basis. Uh, we can call it in the sense of the devil you know better than the devil you don't know. Mm-hmm. Or you can see that um, someone is trapped in a situation and they want out of it, but they don't have any place to go or the place that they would have to go would be equally or worse than the place that they are in. Uh, examples of that in our cliches would be jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there is going to be resistance to change. That uh, this has been known for a long time, and in a way, uh, we can say that you actually need permission to make that change. That it's okay to make a change because uh, the old way of doing it is dangerous, and we know that it's dangerous. It's just that the new way is kind of unknown. And unknown is also dangerous, according to the way that our instincts operate. That's Mm -hmm. why doubt is such a hindrance, is because doubt is unsecurity, uncertainty. And the unsecurity means unsafety and therefore dangerous, fearful, all of that kind of stuff. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, we don't make a change but we can anyway, that you can get over that by, uh, let us say, one step at a time. But the important point is that in uh, about the satisfaction is, is that that satisfaction, or in the Pali, the Sukha, is a skill to be developed, but you have to develop that skill. In other words, if you're sitting dissatisfied, wanting to be satisfied, if you practice that, you'll continue to be dissatisfied, wanting to be satisfied, because that's what you're practicing. But if you can come out of that just a little bit and get yourself a little bit of satisfaction, well, at least this one breath is okay. At least this one moment, this one instant is okay. Then we can build on that. That's the practice because we're now going to practice finding some safety, some satisfaction, some security, and then relish with that for a short moment. Mm -hmm. Now, um, another issue about perception, you use the concept of the racing mind a few moments ago. Mm Actually, the racing mind has the concept of a long period of time, and the mind is going fast now, and it's 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 going fast now, off into the future, it's going fast. This is what we would call the racing mind. But another way of looking at it would be that even on 
uh, the race course, or let us say Indy 500 or Formula One racer, you can have a camera that is um, pointing at the track so as the cars go by, it can take a photo. If that camera is fast enough, it can take a photo of the car without having any of the streaming of the uh, the car's movement while the camera lens is open. If it's a fast enough lens, then you can actually get the picture of the car. In that way, you cannot even look at that picture of that car and say that that car is racing. It's just a car because you saw it in an instant. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is, is that you're seeing the mind over a period of time and you're calling that the racing. Mm -hmm. But a better, better way of looking at it is instead of looking at it over time, the mind's racing, you could look at this thought. Just like that photograph of this car in this instant. Instead of because that's actually when you say the, the mind is racing, that's another way of saying you don't like it. You're dissatisfied with it. And it's also another way of saying that when the mind is racing, I really can't even see what it's doing. Hmm. I can't even see what it's doing. All right, so that's why I call it racing. But if the mind is sharp like that very fast camera, then we can, in fact, see this one thought. So this is what we're looking at is can you see, can you wake up and see the last thought that you had? Hmm. And if that last thought is an unwholesome thought, then we can say, aha, I saw you unwholesome thought. If we talk about it as the racing mind, then that's almost, oh, what am I going to do? It's, <laughs> it's racing. <coughs> I can't do anything about it. Things are happening too fast for me or uh, other ideas like that. I, I think some of the, one of the challenges I have is, um, especially when I first sit down to practice, my, my thoughts can be, you know, thoughts, sensations are moving pretty quickly. But at the same time, I'm trying to keep the focus on the breath. But at the same time, know this dissatisfaction, right? And so I find myself kind of uh, torn between these two things. I'm like, am I focusing on the breath enough? Or am I constantly monitoring for dissatisfaction and not actually focusing on the breath? And so I, I find myself getting, sometimes I get anxious about these things. Am I focusing one too much at the expense of the other. Okay. The first thing is, is that we begin to look at these terms that we use at the same time. Mm -hmm. All right. But a really worst case example of that is, is that solar eclipses and lunar eclipses happen at the same time. If your time frame is 100 years, Hmm. Okay. Uh, if your time frame is large enough, you can say there is both a universe and not a universe if your time frame is large enough. All right. And so if the time frame is one hour, then you can say in that time frame, I'm both at the same time within that hour, unhappy and happy. But if we break it down into smaller time intervals, like right down to this present moment, then there's just really one thing that's happening. 
that in fact one of the ways of looking at it is is like the human brain is very much like a computer that has an instruction set but the computer operates uh, very fast but it only operates by doing one instruction at a time and one instruction at a time it's either a load or a store or a comparison or a jump or many of the different uh, instructions but they only happen one at a time now, uh, one of the things about computers is, is that they've gotten uh, more powerful simply because the instruction set cycle time has increased. When IBM first put out the PC in 1982, I think, or 84, something like that, it was 4.77 megahertz. Now, they run chips at 4 gigahertz, thousand times faster, okay? so. Now we're looking at what we actually mean is, is that each mind moment has something there. And that the mind moment will last about one alpha wave or about a tenth of a second for most people. And that means that a lot of stuff can happen in one second. And that's generally what happens is, is that when we say it happened at the same time, that means that our time frame is within one second. And within one second, we can have 10 mind moments, each mind moment doing a different thing. So on one mind moment, we can look at the breath. Another mind moment, we can look at the mind, etc., like that. So when you recognize that, no, it's not background, foreground, or things happening at the same time, it's just that they happen one by one, one by one as they occur. But they occur pretty fast. Yeah. They arise and pass away very quickly. So, so would it be fair to say that like, it's not worth worrying about whether you're focusing on the breath versus the sensations that are arising? Like, these things are happening all the time, and if you get granular enough, like you can piece these things apart. But maybe the thing is just like just keep noticing your breath and your sensations, and eventually, like that race car, you'll get better. You'll get faster taking more snapshots. And you'll exactly. But but exactly. don't take but don't put any effort in being like, am I thinking about one versus the other too much? Just, just exactly keep, just keep so right. Uh huh. Now you can also think of the click of the camera the movement of the shutter, when does that occur? And the answer would be that it occurs just at the right time uh, to get the picture of the shot, but it also happens because we remember to take the photo. We remember to take a look at it. That's where the Santi comes in, is to remember to look at just this mind moment. What was I doing immediately ago? rather than lumping that all together over a longer duration and call it a racing mind, just say, no, let's not talk about racing mind in the sense of the past 100,000 thoughts. Let's just pick one thought, this one, the one you're having now, to wake up to that, take a photo with it, see what that is, and now we can make a change. All right. But a lot of people have the idea that, uh, that the noting especially when they talk about noting whatever is there, uh, means that they are looking at the thoughts in that racing way, or they're looking at thoughts, um, but they're not really doing anything about it. In other words, we wind up noting a lot of unwholesome stuff. 
where the actual teachings of the Buddha would say that the real noting happens after the mind has a certain amount of training, that we don't start the noting immediately. We, in fact, get the mind fit for work, and then the mind can do the noting. But in this case, the noting is all noting of wholesome things because we're no longer having thoughts of unwholesome things. So we throw the unwholesome things out. It's almost like this. You've got a room full of garbage. And your intention is to clean the room out. It's just completely full of garbage. Many people will go into the room and start inspecting the garbage. And 10, 14, or 30 days later, they're still inspecting the garbage to figure out what they're going to take out and what they're not going to take out. And they haven't really done anything yet except just sort garbage. This is what normal meditation is, is just going into the mind and sorting through the garbage. But the attention or the, uh, the actual task at hand is to clean the mind or, or to clean that room out, get the garbage out. That was the original point. And here we are sorting and collecting and arranging garbage and we haven't removed any of it. So, how can we remove the garbage then? The answer is one piece at a time, one by one as they occur. Anything that finds its way into your hand, you throw it out. That's how... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So, I I was curious about that because sometimes, you know, I have um, unwholesome uh, sensations or thoughts and I... I, then I, I focus on that and try to investigate it. And I, and I can feel myself putting energy to tor- turning that dissatisfaction to satisfaction. And sometimes that, that energy is tinged with dissatisfaction in itself. Uh, but sometimes I feel like that, like I can't immediately flip it. And then I'm, I'm having to put a lot of focus into that one sensation. I'm dwelling on it for a while. And so at, at, at that moment, I can't tell, like, am I putting too much energy in this thing? Is this just reflective of more dissatisfaction? Um, I don't know if that makes sense. But I feel like sometimes it doesn't fully go away and I'm like putting more energy into this thing rather than kind of moving on and keeping noting. Right, right. We have to, um, right effort as well as something <coughs> is a skill to be developed. Mm. And that the way to look at the skill is is that it's the least amount of effort that it takes to actually get the job done. And in this case, what the actual job to be done is basically twofold. One is to change each individual thought, and then over time we change our our views and our uh, attitudes. But we do that one thought at a time. All right. That you can think of, in fact, that the um, uh, uh, that the right attitude is the preparation or getting the car ready for the race. Or another way of uh, talking about right attitude is the racing itself once everything is set up correctly. But in the beginning, uh, we need to. Uh, 
continuously change the unwholesome into the wholesome one little thought at a time. Which in, means in this mind moment or basically in this mind moment, you have a thought. The next mind moment is a wake up or a sati. Then we reflect upon what happened a, uh, a fifth of a second ago and recognize that that thought was unwholesome. So then the next one thought moment is going to be, aha, I see you, Myra. And then the next thought moment is going to be to change it to something wholesome, which would be then to start to take a deep breath. So we're now down at the micro level of how that works. But basically, you bring in sati, which means that we wake up, we take a look, we investigate what that thought was to see if it um, we're doing it this with discernment in the sense of is this a delightful, wonderful thought or is this a junk thought or is this an absolute tragedy? Mm. OK, that would be the in the in the beginning, we could use it in in a, <clears throat> in our investigation of using a threefold discern, discernment. In the sense that we know that some thoughts are absolutely downright unwholesome. Those thoughts of violence, thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of uh, suicide, thoughts of stealing, thoughts of revenge. All of those would definitely be unwholesome thoughts. And then there are some kind of thoughts that we know are absolutely completely wholesome. Wow, this is really great. Wow, I'm so satisfied with this. Wow, this is nice. Okay, so those would be completely wholesome thoughts. Thoughts of relaxation. Thoughts of um, uh, pleasure. Thoughts of satisfaction. Thoughts of safety. Thoughts of security. Thoughts of comfort and thoughts of satisfaction would all be wholesome thoughts. And then in the middle, we will put a, a broad area, the match of uh, the ma the major part of uh, by volume of the number of thoughts we'll put in the middle and we'll call those junk thoughts. They're junk because they're not particularly uh, unwholesome, but they're certainly not wholesome. And that as your skill develops, you'll be able to bring that size down. Because you uh, you, you begin to recognize that a lot of these junk thoughts are actually unwholesome. They've got dangers to them. An example of that is thinking about writing an email that you're not actually writing right now. And you're thinking about writing that email with. Um, uh, regret or consternation or some other feeling when we're thinking about that email, but then we wake up and we say, hey, I don't have to think about that email right now. Look at how I feel when I'm thinking about that email. Let me throw that email out of the mind. And when I do, I say, wow, I'm so glad I don't have to think about that email that I'm not even writing right now. I can sit here and relax. And take a deep breath and say, well, I'm glad I'm not writing that email right now. So that's the whole sequence again right there. But the important point is to wake up in this mind moment rather than saying, oh, all these thoughts about the email is just um, uh, a racing mind. Right, but sometimes you got to just go in there and 
take a point in time or this moment in the wake up and say, I'm not worried about all of those thoughts. I'm just worried about the, this one. I'm, uh, and this thought is an unwholesome thought. So I'm going to throw this thought out and replace it with a wholesome thought. That's the basic practice. When do we do this? Every time we remember to look. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was, I was thinking about like tr transforming these unwholesome thoughts to wholesome and kind of a, a common pattern that I've been doing that feels effective is um, like, especially if there's something unwholesome, like maybe I have like a, a some kind of discomfort, um, like maybe like a mild discomfort. And then I'd be like, oh, like, I, I don't want this anymore. But then kind of looking into it and be like nurturing it and kind of investigating it and reframing it. But like, I'm not kind of getting away from that sensation. Like the sensation's still there. I'm just replacing, I need to run away with this from like, this is actually like interesting and something that I kind of want to hold. Um, so I, I was kind of curious your thoughts on that because I could see that way of doing this, like reframing it and saying like, I'm going to reframe the sensation that I was trying to run away from to being satisfying and nurturing. And then there's another thing of like, well, I'm actually going to think about something entirely different, like my breath, which is wholesome in itself. And so I'm wondering, like, are these both valid ways to convert dissatisfaction to satisfaction? Well, one of the ways that we can talk about it is, is that, and this is a very simple childlike way of, of talking but you have been talking yourself into feeling bad your whole life. And many of the junk thoughts and all of the unwholesome thoughts are continuing to talk ourselves into feeling bad. Now it's time for you to start talking yourself into feeling good by having wholesome thoughts. And if you start having wholesome thoughts, then the child inside will begin to feel comfortable because it's being uh, another way of talking about it is nurturing that normally we have critical thoughts. These junk thoughts are good or thoughts about this is right. This is wrong. This this is good enough. That needs work. This is it's almost like junk thoughts are nothing but a very, very long to do list. And we just go down through that list sometimes just going to all of the stuff that we've got to do. And um, I'm not saying to stop doing that altogether, mm -hmm. but rather that we need to have some alternate in the sense of number one, waking up to that stuff so that we know when we're doing it and when we're not. And also that we've made a habit of it, that that's just the way that we, we normally have. We just go through our to-do list and go through it again and go through it again. And we also do that to-do list we make we put things on the to do list out of what is considered to call the parent ego state or uh, the Buddha would talk about it in the sense of a list of rules, a list of ways that things should be done, a, a list of the things that ought to happen that should happen. And a lot of people's meditation comes out of that parent ego state. So let us say in this mind moment, a student is watching YouTube. The next mind moment, he has the thought, you should be meditating. In the next mind moment, he brings up what you were referring to as the resistance to that. The child says, I don't want to do it. I don't want to meditate. 
right now I want to watch the video. But right in those two mind moments, he's not watching the video. He's inside his mind. But then the next mind moment or two is going to be another thought. Oh, you want to go meditate. It will be really good for you. And then the child says, no, I really want to watch this video. I don't want to meditate right now. And so now you've got maybe a whole second of lost video because he wasn't paying attention to the video. He was having this internal dialogue and that internal dialogue was not particularly joyful. It was basically the drill sergeant is saying up two, three, four, and the kids throwing on the floor saying, I can't go any further. I can't go any further. This is too much for me. Okay. And then the parent is in there, up two, three, four, up two, three, four, climb that hill, tote that barge, up that bale. And the old and the little child is in, but I only want to watch a video. <laughs> All right. So this dialogue is what we need to cap into and recognize that in fact. The alternate would be when that thought comes of watching the video. Oh, you want to meditate right now, or you want to be meditating. Then the real response, a wakeful response, would be, Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and just go right into it right then. So we can use that sati, the wake up call of you want to be meditating, as, as either. Uh, let us say uh, a call that we would normally resist because of the child's uh, pattern that the basically we're raised that way. But we can make a change to it. What I mean by raised that way is, is that we spent our whole lives uh, in the early part of our life. Let us say uh, we're talking about the time frame of uh, perhaps late three-year-olds up to maybe seven. In that time range, the child is changed by society as the child grows up from being an infant that's nurtured and taken care of no matter what into a little kid that's got to perform. He's got to learn his ABCs. He's got to know his one, two, threes. He's got to do what he's told to do. And along the way, the child begins to resent that to resent all of these rules that have been uh, brought into society. And one of the big ones tends to be when a child is that is that age and mom has a new baby. Because now all of mom's nurturing is going to go to the new baby and the old baby that she was nurturing now gets new instructions. Now you're mommy's little helper. We're going to put you to work. Here goes the story of the up two, three, four, as soon as baby is born. And naturally, the uh, the four or five year old is going to be jealous because he has lost his whole world when that new baby came in. Because now, instead of him being nurtured, he has to start doing the nurturing, which he doesn't even have the skills to do. And so we get into that habit of um, doing what we were told to do, but resenting it. And so fast forward into adulthood. Now we're watching a YouTube and have the thought you want to be meditating. And the child ego state inside responds the same way that we responded when we were three years old. I don't want to. 
And so this is a primary dialogue that we have inside. This is that if, if we have an idea that we've got to do something and then we go do it, then that idea was worth having right then. But if I have an idea that I've got to go do something and then I don't go do it, and then five minutes later I have the idea I've got to go do that thing and then I don't do it. What's the point of having these thoughts about going and doing it and then not going and doing it and feel bad about not going and doing it and then giving ourselves thoughts about going and doing it again and we still don't do it? That's the old habit. And so you can also become aware of that, that when that resistance comes up, you can say, aha, I see that too. I see that balking. I see that resentment of doing what I'm told to do. And when we can see that, we can say, aha, I see you. I see how I have just talked myself into feeling bad by giving myself an order that I refuse to carry out. So is the unwholesome part here that you're giving yourself an order or that you, you are resisting the order? Both of them, because they're, the, the human mind is stuck in that dialogue. Hmm. OK, and both of them are uncomfortable. One is giving you work to do and the other one is resisting your own authority and your work. And so both of those things are unwholesome. But aha, I see that dialogue. Now, there's another part of the dialogue that's interesting, and that is, is that the, uh, the orders are given verbally, but the answer to those orders are given with feelings or emotions. What do I mean by that? In other words, there's no real voice coming out of the child saying, no, I don't want to. It's much more of a feeling. And so this feeling is not a pleasant feeling. It's a feeling of resistance. It might have guilt built into it. It might have um, rebellion or a rebel built into it. Or it might have a submissive loser built into it. Various different ways that the child will react or respond and I use the word react rather than respond because it really is a reaction because we keep doing the same thing. We keep acting the same way over and over again since childhood. But now it's time to wake up to that, to see that we talk ourselves into feeling bad. And when we recognize and see that in the next mind moment, we can start talking ourselves into feeling good. Starting with, aha, uh -huh, I see that. That happens in this mind moment. Aha, I see that. And that aha is what we're actually looking for. Ah, I see it. But the ah is actually the seeing it. The I, uh, ah, I see it. That I see it is actually just a reaffirmation. But the actual seeing it comes with that child's feeling of ah. So the child's um, language is uh, a, a guttural uh, voice or maybe even no voice at all. It's just a feeling. But the dialogue is then between the language of the parent and the feeling of the child. 
and the language of the parent and the feeling of the child. Well, if the language of the parent is no longer critical, you ought to go, uh, be meditating and the, uh, the parent ego states start being nurturing like mommy was when we were an infant. Then the language is going to be, wow, you're a really great meditator. You can really remember this stuff. Mm. And those, those kind of nurturing thoughts then will leave the child in a state of satisfaction. So we can also talk ourselves into feeling safe and secure by just looking around the room and say, you know, there's no crocodiles, there's no alligators, there's no danger here. Why should I feel afraid and uptight when there is really no danger, other than the fact that we can think of dangers and then feel uptight? So now instead of thinking of dangers and feeling danger, like, if you don't meditate, you're probably going to wind up being an asshole the rest of your life. And that's enough to just terrify the child. Instead of saying, wow, you really are good at this. And now the child feels nurtured. And so when we start having thoughts about everything is safe, everything is secure, everything is comfortable. In the Thai language, they have the word sabai, sabai. And then we can start saying, you know, this is good enough. Now I can become satisfied because I feel safe and secure and comfortable because I've talked myself into it. And now I can feel satisfied because I'm talking myself into it and, and having satisfying thought right now. And so everything has to do with just this mind moment. OK, so now comes in that deep breath because the breathing um, uh, when you're when you're taking long, slow, deep breaths, there's various ways of measuring that. And we normally think of when we're counting slow that a count is like a second. So if we have uh, the count of four, four, two, taking four, a count of four on an in breath and the count of four on the out breath, followed by two counts uh, between the out breath and the next in breath. That 442 is a count of 10, which means that now we're down to about six breaths a minute. That's a good starting point. Because normal breathing is at 20. And so we've cut it down to almost a quarter. Very easy to do that because we can remember. I mean, we've been able to control our breath our whole lives, but we don't normally go around controlling the breath. We let it go back to automatic pilot. But in fact, our whole lives we allow to go on automatic pilot and we don't have to do too much uh, uh, investigation and uh, um, the kind of uh, thought that is figuring stuff out. That takes a lot of effort, which means we want to have really good deep breaths so that we can oxygenate the mind so that it can be ready and fit for work. And so those long, deep breaths uh, last now um, uh, about 10 seconds. So in that 10 seconds, that means that we have about 100 mind moments. Isn't that amazing? Within one breath, we have about 100 mind moments, 100 things that we have to do. Because that's the cycle of uh, the alpha waves of the brain. So one of those mind moments is going to be to remember to take a deep breath and then we remember to uh to take that long deep breath 
And as we do that, we begin to experience the breath, the air that is coming in. But we also begin to think about it. That in fact, uh, some of our verbal thoughts can be about this present moment, which means they're pretty healthy. Thinking about the breath, thinking about the body, thinking about what's happening right this very minute or this very moment uh, is much more wholesome than thinking about something that is not right here in front of us right now. So thoughts about the past, even if it's the immediate past, even if it was 10 minutes ago. That's not not now. So we begin to spend more and more in the present moment, which means here rather than there. So if you're in Los Angeles, you think about only the things that are in your world of Los Angeles. We don't think about Chicago. Not while we're sitting. This is a training. You're, uh, some people will hear that means that I can never think about Chicago. No, I didn't say that. No, we're training the mind into the wholesome. Once you get the mind in the wholesome, you can bring wholesome thoughts about Chicago up. But mostly when we have thoughts about Chicago, they're not particularly wholesome. <laughs> and so the training is, is to get the mind into the wholesome, not um, let us say um, disallowing the mind to have uh, certain kinds of topics to think about. But really what we're talking about is, is that can you do those things in a nurturing way? Or do you have to continue doing it in the critical way that the that the child was trained, especially like in school, first grade? You got to sit down at the desk. Okay, there's such a major difference between play school where the kids are just all over the place and they go and they do what they want to do. And all the teacher has to do is to divert Tommy from the truck that Billy's playing with into something that Tommy can play with without harming Billy. And that's about the only thing that they um, that they learn, but they don't learn that very well. Maybe we should stop having one, two, threes in our first grade and teach the kids how to get along with each other instead. That would be a better education. But no, we get into that critical mind state of uh, do what you're told to do, learn your one, two, threes, learn your ABCs, and off it goes. And we can we we feel kind of good about learning that stuff, but we also don't. We don't really like it, but we do it anyway because we're told to do it. And we're actually we're just little kids anyway. We don't really have much choice. But when you're an adult, you do have a choice. The little kid doesn't have a choice. He doesn't know that he's got a choice and no one there is pointing out that he has a choice about how he feels. But as an adult, when you start practicing out upon a sachi, you recognize, no, I do have a choice, but I have to wake up to this repetitive thought system that we've had. That basically is a dialogue between the parent and the child. We, we think of it, no, it's just thinking. That is not a dialogue, but in fact, there is a dialogue going on and it goes something like this. Think, feel, think, feel, think, feel, think, feel, think, feel, think, feel. Only it happens even faster than that. And so we do have this dialogue 
And so what we want to do is have the uh, think good, feel good, think good, feel good. But now we think critically, feel critical, think critical, feel bad is the normal way that we do it. But we can wake up to that. That's where the observer comes in is to recognize that dialogue. I can wake up to that and recognize that many of the thoughts that I have just make me feel bad. And so we're now going to start having thoughts that make us feel good. We have to remember one after another, after another, after another. And when we get one wholesome thought after another, after another, that's a marvelous state to be in. It's really marvelous when you can apply your mind to the wholesome, have it sustained on the wholesome, talking ourselves by gladdening the mind, we actually then start to develop the skill of having a gladdened mind and the skill of feeling safe and secure because we're talking ourselves into it. There's no dangers here. There's no worries. There's no problems. There's no jobs to do. We can just relax. And actually, relaxation is, a num is another way of saying feeling safe. And so when we feel safe because we've talked ourselves into it, now that's a new skill to be developed, that skill of sukha. Because in fact, now that state of sukha is actually a state of satisfaction. And here we've been talking ourselves into being in a state of dissatisfaction, like write that email, I don't want to write that email. Go write that email, I don't want to write that email. Or go to the bank, I don't want to go to the bank. You got to go to the bank, I don't want to go to the bank. That dialogue can be changed into, uh, let's take a really deep breath and enjoy it. Yeah, we could do that. And so um, part of the, uh, the training is to get the mind um, or our ideas or our conceptual ideas about racing minds and long-term um, situations and start looking at things in a much shorter time frame of remembering to look at what this thought is, just this last thought within the past half second. And then we can investigate that and then we can change that from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. This is why we have right view, which is the investigation itself. What is wholesome? What is not wholesome? We have sati to remember to wake up and do this investigation. Then we take the right effort, just about of right effort to throw that thought out. It's unwholesome. It's a critical thought. Let's bring in a nurturing thought. Well, I don't have to think about going to the bank. I don't have to do anything right now. I don't have to give myself some work to do. I could just relax. And we can practice this over and over again. And as we do, we begin to put ourselves into that state of relaxation, that state of comfort, that state of security, that state of satisfaction over and over again. And pretty soon we get the attitude, you know, I can do this. I actually can do this. I'm a success at this. We begin to nurture that too, and that's what brings on the right attitude, the attitude of a winner, not the attitude of, oh, this is hard, or I'll try, but into the attitude of, this is a piece of cake. 
I really like this meditation stuff. It's really great. And so we develop that attitude. These are all factors on the Eightfold Noble Path. And if we see it, I mean, a lot of people who are studying Buddhism, they memorize the Eightfold Noble Path. They memorize the Four Noble Truths, but they don't know how to actually put it into practice. This is actually the practical application of the Eightfold Noble Path. It's sati, to wake up, look at what you're doing, make a change, relax, and feel good. That's the sequence. And that relaxation is also taking a relaxed breath. Some students have told me that uh, they do the relaxed breathing for only so long and then they get tired of doing it. And it says, well, if you get tired, then it wasn't really all of that relaxing in the first place, now was it? <laughs> Another way of thinking it, it is, well, I was doing it for a while and then I forgot. Well, never mind, start again. That's the mind. Yeah, you're going to it's going to wander away. That's why we call talk sati or say sati is the most important skill to be developed, because that's what we keep we need to do is to develop it so that it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back and it keeps coming back. It's not that it's there every minute or every thought or all the time, but whether it comes up when we need it most. That's how we're practicing. And so we want to actually apply sati with every breath. Sati on the in-breath to make sure this is a long, deep breath. We have to know it, so we have to remember that this breath, too, is a long, deep breath. And the next out-breath is a long, deep out-breath. So there are two points of sati right there. So monitoring and watching the breath, a lot of people think about uh, the breath is the breath itself. No, actually using the breath to develop the skill of sati as well as using the breath to oxygenate the mind. To use the breath also to clean out the carbon dioxide and the other poisons that have accumulated in the, in the breath. Um, now, some research has pointed out that large amounts of carbon dioxide in the brain is a very good sign. And I can understand that. Why? Because if there is a lot of carbon dioxide in the brain, that means that the brain has produced that carbon dioxide from the glucose that came out of the blood and the oxygen that came out of the blood. But we don't want the, uh, the brain to just build up with carbon dioxide more and more and more. More is better, they kind of think. But oh no, it's a good sign that this carbon dioxide is being produced in the blood or uh, and uh, put into the brain. But we want the blood then to carry it out, get it to the lungs and breathe that stuff out and breathe in more oxygen so that we can continue the process. If the brain filled up with carbon dioxide, people would die. And yet they understand that a buildup of car or building up of carbon dioxide and having large amounts of carbon dioxide in the brain is good because that means that the brain is functioning correctly. Mm -hmm. But if we're not breathing well, then we stop thinking. The mind gets tired because all of this carbon dioxide. In fact, they, they figured that out. That why even alligators in alligator wrestling, alligators can put out huge amounts of effort and energy for a short period of time and then they get tired. Mm -hmm. Also, 
that happens. That's that's part of the reason why prize fights go for 15 rounds is because that means that the guys have to train in a certain way so that they can keep on keeping on and keeping on, which means that they've got to have good breathing to get that carbon dioxide out of the system. Because if they keep the carbon dioxide in the system, they'll feel tired. But if we keep breathing, then all of that carbon dioxide that we're producing with this healthy brain that we've got, having wholesome, healthy thoughts, takes oxygen. It's something new to do. It's a new skill that we're developing. So it's actually going to take a lot of oxygen to do that. And so this is why uh, the Buddha incorporates breathing with this practice. Mm -hmm. Because it's got several benefits. One is it builds sati. Number two, it oxygenates the blood. And number three, it helps to remove the uh, carbon dioxide buildup. And so basically what we're saying is, is that breathing is an integral part of getting the mind fit for work and keeping it uh, fit for work. And the fit for work means that we can apply it to the wholesome and sustain it. Sure. I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I do have to leave. I have to go pick up my girlfriend from the airport. <laughs> so I really hate to interrupt right now because this is... Well, this actually is a pretty good place to stop. We can incorporate that then. So let's spend the last minute or so recapping this eightfold noble path of to wake up, to look at what you're doing in this mind moment. Not long enough to say that the mind is racing, but in this particular mind moment, to wake up and say, this thought is unwholesome. Aha, I see this thought. Mm -hmm. And then we change this thought from an unwholesome to a wholesome thought. Wow, I don't have to think about that. No place to go. I'm okay right now. No, nothing to do. Never mind. That's the state that we want to get into. Everything is okay. Everything is easy peasy. Safe, secure, competent, satisfied. Though that's the words that you want to use for yourself. Because if you use those words, you can actually talk yourself into feeling that way. Mm. But if you have thoughts, oh, where's my safety? Where's my security? Oh, I'm supposed to be practicing Anapanasati. I'm supposed to feel good and I don't feel good at all. Okay, those are just all one unwholesome thought after another after another. Expecting it to happen magically rather than actually making the change ourselves. Mm -hmm. All right. So this will give you a new kind of frame of reference in the practice. So and continue. We were going to go off into why it's so valuable to practice short periods of time. And the easy way to say it is, is that if you're going to sit down for an hour, a lot of what will happen is, is that you're waiting for the mind to get tired before you start actually practicing. But if you're only practicing and sitting down for 10 or 15 minutes, then you go right into it. Mm -hmm. So it's better to have shorter times many times in the day rather than having one long meditation session. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Because we're actually developing sati so that we can have that as a skill that will be there any time in the day, any time we need it, we want that sati to come, to wake up just in time. And so that's why we practice sati as a skill. And so we want to practice it throughout the day, several times a day. 
five minutes here, 10 minutes there, 15 minutes there, five minutes here, two minutes there. That's the way to practice. And that will help build up that skill. Okay. All right, well, you go practice that and have fun at it, and we'll talk to you later then. Go get your girlfriend. <laughs> awesome. I'm looking forward to it, and always a pleasure to speaking with you, and yeah, I hope to, I'll definitely see you soon. I'll be out of town for a couple of weeks, but um, I'll, I'll be in that Friday night song book pretty soon, and I'll see you pretty soon. So, always a pleasure. Excellent, Tyler. We'll see you. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh-huh.